Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Krista Hoyt wasn't the type to simply not show up for work. She was far too reliable and responsible for that. Those are the traits that had helped land her the job as a clerk with Alachua County Sheriff's Office in the first place. So when she didn't report for a midnight shift on a Saturday in 1990, her bosses wasted no time in sounding an alarm. A sheriff's deputy was sent to her apartment to check on her at about 12.30 a.m. I tried knocking on the door. I knocked for several minutes, couldn't get any sort of an answer at all. This is then-Deputy Keith O'Hara talking to FBI Criminal Pursuit. I walked around to the side, and at that time, there was chain-link fence. I noticed that it was pushed down as if somebody had walked across it. I started to become alarmed that something wasn't right. As O'Hara approached, he noticed that a sliding glass door leading into Krista's apartment appeared tampered with. There were Venetian-type blinds, and they were slightly raised on one side. And so I got down on my hands and knees to see if I could see anybody inside of the apartment. Through the small opening beneath the blinds, O'Hara could see a woman on the bed of Krista's bedroom. I thought that my eyes were playing tricks on me, that I couldn't believe what I was seeing and she had clearly been decapitated. Krista Hoyt, an aspiring police officer, had been raped, killed, and mutilated in death inside of the safety of her own home, shocking not just the Gainesville, Florida community where she lived, but the whole country, especially because she was the third victim found in two days. The case was likened to a 20th century Jack the Ripper, and investigators worried that, just like Jack, they might never find the killer. Right off I-75 in northern Florida is a charming college town called Gainesville, best known for its historic buildings and sprawling campus. In August of 1990, Money Magazine also heralded the city's safe streets as it named the University of Florida town the 13th best place to live in the entire country. Later that very month, newscaster Dan Rather would suggest that Gainesville was, quote, perhaps the most dangerous place in America, end quote. The abrupt turnaround in reputation took just four days. Four days and one madman wielding a combat knife. The nightmare started August 24th. Christina Powell was still settling into a new apartment she was sharing with another UF student, Sonia Larson. Both were freshmen who had attended the summer session, though Christina was still 17 to Sonia's 18. Christina had been raised in Jacksonville, about 90 minutes from Gainesville. She was the baby of the family with six older siblings. 
Just days earlier, she'd packed up her car with her belongings to move into her first apartment, a two-bedroom pad that she would share with Sonia. Around 11 p.m. August 23rd, a Thursday, Christina called home and told her parents that everything was going well. She and Sonia were getting used to the new place and still unpacking. She was eager for classes to begin on Monday, and she promised to call home every day, at least until she felt grounded. The next day, her call never came. Her mother, Patricia Powell, worried, of course, but calmed herself down by reasoning that Christina must have just been too busy. The day after that was August 25th, and Christina was set to meet her sister and brother-in-law because the pair were going to deliver some furniture for the apartment. The couple arrived about 5 p.m., but no one answered the apartment door. They waited until 9 before finally leaving and alerting their parents that Christina was a no-show. Mrs. Powell couldn't keep calm any longer. She and her husband started driving early Sunday to Gainesville. When they arrived, they were greeted with the excitement and chaos that anyone who's visited a college town just before classes begin knows well. Thousands of kids were milling about, cars clogged the roadways, the moving vans were too numerous to count. When her parents got no answer at Christina's door, they tracked down a maintenance man who called the police. I was wondering if it would be possible for me to have an officer to meet me. Okay, what's the problem there? I have two girls. The parents uh, suspected that something's wrong with them or they've disappeared or something. I'm just not sure. And my manager informs me not to go in by myself, but okay. to get something by police officer. Go ahead. We're here for me too. Though his shift was ending, Officer Ray Barber headed to the Williamsburg Village Apartments on his way home. Using a master key, he tried to open the front door of Christina and Sonia's apartment, but it wouldn't budge. The maintenance worker took the lead on busting down the door. He and his manager, whose voice you hear here, were the first inside. Then when he went in, I followed him into the apartment and saw the, the young lady on the bed. The deputy was behind the manager and Christina's parents were behind him. My maintenance man, unfortunately, ran down the stairs screaming, oh God, oh God, and came out and he threw up. And the sad, sad part about it is, we had the parents behind us on the stairs. It was impossible to shield the Powells from the horror inside the apartment. I need a supervisor and ID criminalistics and detectives to respond down here to this apartment. Both women were dead. Sonia was in her bed upstairs. Christina was downstairs near the couch. Both had tape residue on their mouths, indicating that their killer had stifled their screams, then taken the tape with him to eliminate that evidence from a 2020 special. Downstairs, Christina Powell was lying, having been stabbed to death, having been raped. He had mutilated her breasts. Sonia Larson, who was on her waterbed, she had multiple stab wounds to her arms and her torso. And there's something that's that the officer noticed right away that was very unusual. She was supposed, um, all her clothes were off. Uh, she was lying back on the bed with her feet on the floor and her hair was fanned out, almost like a, dis- a display, a shocking value. The women who'd been poised to begin the most exciting period of their young lives not only had been killed, but they'd been abused even in death. Soon, Sonia's mother, Ada, got the phone call. I screamed and my husband didn't know what was happening. He came out and took the phone. It was just a a, a 
horrible, horrible day. We just got in the car and headed for Gainesville. And um, I had to have my husband stop at the side of the road and I looked outside and the stars were shining and I just looked at God and I said, God, why, how could this possibly happen? Why did this happen? Investigators set about looking for answers. The bodies were transported to medical examiner William Hamilton, who, after examining the women, came to a blood-chilling conclusion. I told the investigators that uh, this uh, crime was uh, the work of a Bundy-style serial killer. The only question is, how many victims will he take before he leaves Gainesville and goes on to another area? If anyone had been skeptical of Hamilton's warning, their doubts were answered just hours later. That's when an unwitting sheriff's deputy was dispatched to check on Christina Hoyt and found her beheaded body. News of the three murdered women discovered in a less than 12-hour span on the eve of the school year's start caused absolute panic from 2020 again. The killing sent a shockwave here through the University of Florida campus. You know, it really makes me fear for my for my life. I just think it's really frightening that something like this can happen in your own backyard. Well, it was really shocking. We were sitting on the floor in the dorm and um, immediately got up and locked the door. It concerns my mother even more. Many continue to go to classes even though they say the administration should postpone school for a few days. I think they should until at least next week. See what happens. I mean, they should catch this guy. Everything else that had been happening in town seemed to fizzle. Police, for example, had been searching for a man who'd robbed a bank with an accomplice about a week before the killings, and now that search was on hold. The madman, now on the loose, was way worse than any bank robber. Comparisons to Ted Bundy flew left and right. Bundy's spree, part of which had also been on a college campus in Florida, had targeted mostly young brunettes, same as Christina, Sonia, and Krista. Though Bundy's attacks had ended some 12 years earlier, he was still very much on the minds of Floridians. The previous year, he'd been executed in the electric chair at the Florida State Prison. It was only on the eve of that execution that he had finally confessed to any of the slayings. And while there's debate over how much of his confessions were accurate, the details he provided were horrific and fresh in people's minds. He'd taken credit for 36 killings across several states in the 1970s, and experts believe the body count could really be as high as 100. With three victims already, Gainesville police worried, how many will this new monster kill before he's done? We had parents calling, should I take my kids home? This is Dominic Pape, former special agent with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Of course, we had a lot of law enforcement on the streets, but even if you put a, a cop on every corner, there's no guarantee we could prevent the next attack. The whole campus seemed on edge. Some kids went home, others bought mace and guns. Diana Hoyt, Krista's stepmother, said, Parking lots were literally filled with police cars that were out looking for the suspect. So this was like a terror state in the whole community. Nobody felt safe. Police set up a task force, but had very little to go on. We didn't have a lot of eyewitnesses, and that makes it tougher because you don't have anybody that drove by or you didn't have commotion where local law enforcement was dispatched or you didn't have somebody next door that says, yes, I saw him or I saw people run away. And the killer had been careful. 
He had raped two of the three women he'd killed so far, and afterward, he'd cleaned them with either vinegar or dish soap to destroy the evidence. Police gleaned very little from the crime scenes. They could see pry marks at Krista's sliding door, and they could tell that the knife used to kill the women had been large, likely a seven-inch blade at minimum. They could also tell that the killer was cold and confident enough that he stayed a while in the apartments. After killing Christina and Sonia, for example, he'd taken a shower in their place. After killing Krista, he'd grabbed some food from her kitchen. Retired FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood. I think he's trying to send the message that he is in control. He's in control, and he's challenging law enforcement. And his killing spree wasn't over. On Tuesday, August 28th, a friend of 23-year-old Manuel Tabuada got worried that he hadn't been able to reach Manny or Manny's roommate, Tracy Paulez, also 23. Tracy had, in fact, been on edge about this killer in town, though she told her friends and family not to worry because she had Manny. She'd roomed with a male friend in part because he was a big dude, weighing some 200 pounds and standing six foot two. She felt safe with him. Still, Manny's friend didn't like that his phone calls were going unanswered. He reached out to the Gatewood Apartments to ask that someone there make sure everything was okay. Minutes later, a maintenance man was using his master key to open the door of apartment 1203. As soon as he did, he saw a woman's body and quickly registered that there was a dark-colored bag near her head. Panicked, he slammed the door from FBI criminal pursuit. He waited for the police officer wisely to arrive, and we actually made entry into that scene. The black bag was gone. We were very, very close on his heels. Inside the apartment, police found Tracy had been raped before she was stabbed three times in the back. Medical examiner William Hamilton. Tracy's body was found uh, in the hallway, laying on her back again. And uh, we found tape marks on her wrists, again, evidence that she was alive sometime with the killer. As with the previous victims, the killer had treated her like a puppet in death. The killer drug her from her bedroom into the hallway and positioned her in a uh, manner designed to degrade and humiliate her even after death. But there was a key difference in this crime scene compared with the previous two. The killer didn't mutilate Tracy's body. Investigators came up with a few possible reasons why. First, if the maintenance man indeed saw a bag next to Tracy's head that disappeared between the time he slammed the door and the time police entered the apartment, it's possible the killer was interrupted and had fled in that brief window. Or second, it could have been because the evening hadn't gone as smoothly as the others. That thought was based on Manny Tabuada's body. The killer attacked him rather quickly, leaped up on the bed, and stabbed him many times in the face, neck, chest, abdomen, arms, and uh, in the right leg. The wounds in the arms uh, looked uh, very characteristic for defense wounds. They put up a vigorous struggle. It appeared Manny died first. The killer wanted him out of the way so he could take longer with his attack on Tracy. But the wound showed that Manny fought his attacker hard. And maybe that rattled the killer enough that he nixed his usual signature, the mutilation of the woman's body. Or it could be that he ran out of time because after he raped and killed Tracy, he raped her body again. 
When word of the latest attack spread, this sent the whole Gainesville area into a panic. And at that time, we became very frightened. We were sh sleeping in shifts. We were afraid, terrified to lay down for all of us to sleep at the same time. The university canceled classes for a week. Some students left school never to return. As police sought clues in the case, one officer spotted two suspicious-looking men near some woods toward the edge of town. One of the men was white, the other black. The white guy ran, so police gave chase, but they lost him. The black man confessed that he had helped his buddy, a guy he said was named Mike Kennedy, rob the bank a week prior. If you remember, that was one of the Gainesville cases that had been backburnered because of the murders. With a suspect in custody for the bank robbery, interest was briefly resuscitated. But while police found and sent off for testing a makeshift campsite in the woods that included bags of clothes and tools, they couldn't find this Mike Kennedy guy. And they had a serial killer on the loose, so attention shifted back to the homicides. By this point, the media had given the killer a nickname. The Gainesville Ripper. The Gainesville Ripper. The Gainesville Ripper. Calls came into police from people all over the country with tips about possible suspects, the list of which grew to more than 600 names. But one of those names stood out more than most. This is J.T. Hunter, who wrote the book A Monster of All Time. They ended up coming up with their top suspect, this guy, Edward Humphrey, who had a colorful background himself. And so you could see how he could come to be a, a suspect in the case. Um, kind of a creepy looking guy, too, physically. Humphrey looks hella good on paper. If circumstantial evidence were all you need to convict someone, this guy would have been sent to Sing Sing for life straight away. He used to live in Manny and Tracy's apartment complex, but he was kicked out by his roommates for repeatedly threatening them with knives. Not only that, but police heard a story from a woman named Terry Mykoff. The um, Humphreys boy actually had come in to where I was working the one time. And when he left the one girl, we all got together talking. And she says, you know, he's just, he told me something that just really, really, you know, bothered me. He says he had knives at home that could flay the skin off my, off my body. And it's like, good Lord. Humphrey had recently been arrested for assaulting his grandmother, who didn't want to press charges because she said he was mentally ill and off his medication. There's a definite stigma around mental illness, so the fact that Humphrey was diagnosed bipolar piqued police interest even further. They learned that he had been badly injured in a car wreck the year prior, in 1989, which left him with visible scars marring his face. Could that have led to the rage unleashed on the Gainesville victims? Police obtained a search warrant for his apartment in his grandmother's home and found some screwdrivers that they thought could have been used to pry open, say, a locked sliding glass door, as well as several knives. They also got samples of his DNA. Though the killer had cleaned his victims, he still had left traces of himself behind. To investigators' shock, Humphrey wasn't a match. Now, because a cloud has hovered over this man for years, let me be clear here. He's innocent. He was always innocent. And from his story, there's an important lesson to glean. It doesn't matter how good a suspect looks on paper if he didn't do it. The goal is to find the truth, not win a conviction. 
Humphrey was convicted of assaulting his grandmother over her protests and served nearly two years in a mental health institution. By the time he got out, police had finally found the real killer. It was the bank robber. The Gainesville Ripper, the madman who flayed five victims in a four-day span, was also the man who helped rob a bank the week before the murders. This was confirmed by laboratory testing. The campsite revealed numerous pieces of evidence that linked our perpetrator to the campsite and our perpetrator to the crime scene, the crime scene. As with Humphrey, Danny Harold Rowling was arrested soon after the deaths on a completely unrelated charge. He'd been picked up for robbing a supermarket the month after the murders. A tip about him came in while he was in custody, and that tip led police to compare the Gainesville murders with an unsolved triple homicide the year before in Shreveport, Louisiana. It happened November 4th, 1989, a Saturday. Tom Grissom was a 55-year-old divorced AT&T supervisor who had been battling throat cancer, but was getting better. That weekend, it just so happened that his grandson, Sean, had come to visit him as part of a birthday celebration. Sean had just turned eight. Sean's aunt and Tom's 24-year-old daughter, Julie, was about to graduate Louisiana State University of Shreveport with a degree in marketing. Sean's mother got frantic when her dad didn't return her son as planned. Neighbors went to the Grissom house to check on them, and they found Tom, his back and chest riddled with stab wounds, slumped against the utility room door off of the garage. He'd been interrupted, cooking steaks on the backyard grill. Sean was face down in the family room with one knife wound going clean through his little body. Julie was in a bedroom. She'd been raped, stabbed, posed, and mutilated. As with the other victims, investigators could tell that her wrists had been bound, though the killer removed the tape before he left. Gainesville officers also noticed. He attempted to potentially eliminate DNA evidence by pouring a fluid on her in hopes to uh, destroy any DNA evidence, the same that he had done in our crime scenes here. The Grissom case was technically unsolved, but police there had a suspect they favored. Hal Carter was a public defender who had briefly dated Julie Grissom. And the days after the murder, a newspaper story described him as an estranged boyfriend who had experience with crime scenes. Even though he had a solid alibi, to many, he became known as the defense attorney who'd used his insider knowledge to commit the perfect crime. Now that Gainesville police had looked at Danny Rowling in connection with the Grissom investigation, that Louisiana case took a turn. Rowling had been fired from his job in a restaurant about a mile from the Grissom home just hours before the slayings. He'd also had extensive run-ins with police, landing him in prisons in Mississippi and Georgia for the better part of a decade. He was still on probation, in fact, for robbing a Kroger store in 1985. He'd fled Shreveport after a fight with his father, ended with Rowling shooting his old man in the face. Amazingly, his father survived. Neighbors had always known Rowling as something of an oddball. He would jog the neighborhood in fatigues and a bandana, prompting some of the kids to nickname him Rambo. The police's suspicions were strong enough that they got DNA samples, which connected Rowling to the murder scenes in Gainesville. The pieces started falling into place. 
A screwdriver found at the bank robber's campsite matched the pry marks at the entry points of the murder scenes. A pubic hair found within the belongings at the site was shown through DNA testing to have come from Krista Hoyt. A ski mask recovered there was made of the same fibers that had been found on a tiny piece of duct tape left behind at the third crime scene. Police also found a cassette tape with a recording of Rowling speaking to his family the night the Gainesville murders began. Well, I know I have to run the rest of my life, but I'm getting pretty good at it. I'm going to sign off for a little bit. That's something I got to do. After his arrest, it wasn't long before Rowling confessed, though he did it in typical control freak fashion. Instead of just telling police what he had done, he told a cellmate. The cellmate told police, and then Rowling would confirm and or elaborate on what the cellmate had said. It's frankly ridiculous, but it held up in court. Obviously, claiming innocence wasn't going to be a winning strategy. In fact, Rowling surprised everyone by pleading guilty to the Gainesville murders in 1994. But Rowling's defense lawyer, Johnny Kearns, wanted to spare his client's life. To do that, he decided to lay out the abuse that Rowling had endured as a child. And in fairness, Rowling's upbringing was awful. His father, the one he eventually wounded in a shooting, was abusive from the start, beating the kid when he was still learning to crawl. Author J.T. Hunter again. He called his father a psychopathic sadist. He was afraid of his father for sure. His father frequently beat him across the stomach with a belt. Um, if, they, if he cried, he beat him more severely. He traumatized Danny one time, shaved his head, you know, right before school. So he had to go to the school with his head shaved. And his father beat him with his fist. He tied him up you know, to a pole in the yard at times, just all sorts of things. Rowling's mother, Claudia, left several times, but could never resist James Rowling's overtures. So time and again, she returned, delivering her children to a man she knew would mistreat them. James and Claudia had married in 1953 when they were 21 and 19, respectively. Within two weeks, Claudia was pregnant with her first son, whom they would name Daniel Harold. The physical abuse began before Danny was even born, prompting Claudia to leave James and move back with her parents. But James followed her there and convinced her to return. On May 26, 1954, Danny was born. Less than two years later came his brother, Kevin. And you can see the family's constant state of turmoil, even in the Shreveport city directories of the time. I found one in 1955 that listed James as living alone. The next year, Claudia was living with him again. Throughout it all, James worked as a city policeman. Claudia would later recall that one time, James kept turning the television off as she was watching it, which sparked an argument that ended with James punching her in the face. She left him again. Daniel was four and his brother about three and stayed away for some six months. It's of course not Claudia's fault that her husband was an abusive asshole. She was a victim in all of this too. And it does seem like she tried to shield her kids to a degree, though in hindsight, it's obvious there was no way to protect her children while in this man's presence. Some of the ways she tried, though, included feeding the boys before James got home so he couldn't berate them for how they sat or held their silverware or breathed at the table. 
She would hide the kids' transgressions because if James found out about them, he would beat them. If they cried, he'd beat them harder. Once, when Danny was in the third grade, James got so abusive at Christmas time that Claudia shoved the Christmas tree in the car and drove off with the kids, only to return. Danny reportedly got a dog at one point, and his dad beat the creature so routinely, it eventually died from its injuries in Danny's arms. The boys reportedly begged their mother to leave their father, but she always came back. She later said it was because she believed marriage was forever, but it's also clear she felt trapped by a man said to have kept a black book of people who pissed him off and who at least once threatened to kill Claudia and the two kids with his police gun. One neighbor said she went to the police with Claudia once to file a report against James, but Claudia was turned away. James's colleagues refused to open an investigation because they said it would tarnish his career. According to Hunter, one relative reported, When Danny was in his young teens, like 13 or 14 years old, his dad didn't like the way he had mowed the yard. So James, the father, ended up grabbing Danny and throwing him on the ground and sitting with his knees on Danny's chest, like pressing all of his weight. He was a pretty big guy, pressing all of his weight down on Danny so that he could, Danny could barely breathe. And, you know, she saw his face turning purple. Uh, and the father was just laughing, you know, like a, like a maniac, she described it. At some point, one of Danny's teachers recommended to his mother that he get counseling for his anxiety and personality problems. Danny's father, of course, forbade that and berated his son, who attempted suicide at least twice. As a young man, Rowling finally moved away and joined the Air Force around 1971, but he was caught with drugs and booze and was discharged. He got married in 1974 and became father to a daughter that he sometimes seemed to have loved. But as was the case with James, parenthood didn't suit Rowling. Neither did marriage. He was arrested for spying on women in their homes, a peeping Tom situation, which helped ensure his wife left him within a few years. Looking at Rowling's upbringing, it's clear he had a terrible start in life. Retired FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood again. Abuse, Danny Rowling, suffered at the hands of his father. Physical abuse, emotional abuse, probably had some impact on his commission of the crimes. But I think more importantly is that he felt that he had been abandoned by his mother, that she didn't protect him. That's where his anger against women came. And there was a family history of mental illness to boot, one steeped in violence. A grandfather reportedly slit his wife's throat in front of James Rowling. An uncle died by suicide with a shotgun. Another uncle was institutionalized. Rowling's defense lawyer laid all this out to spare his client's life, and it did generate sympathy for him. But is Danny Rowling himself a victim? He's a very serious illness. From an early age, Rowling was repeatedly bullied, beaten, and humiliated by his father. I've worked with a number of serial killers and other convicts, and uh, Danny Rowling's quite different than the, uh, most of them that I have encountered before and since. Women wrote Rowling's sympathetic love letters. That last voice you heard was Sandra London, a writer who began working on a book with Rowling after his arrest and who apparently fell in love with him. She wrote him letters calling him her man and the two were engaged, though they never got married. Here's him serenading her, I guess you would call it, during a court hearing. I recall the day I first saw you 
reached out to say I love you, but it was hard to say I couldn't touch you. So tell me, baby, what were my words? All my tears run together. Excuse me, Mr. Down the path you choose Mr. to follow. Mr. Rollins. I'm not numb to the repercussions of childhood trauma and abuse. But at the same time, you can't lose sight of what Danny Rowling did. Never, ever, any of our law enforcement officers that were uh, exposed to these crime scenes had ever seen anything like that. And thank the good Lord, we haven't seen anything like that since. Up to this point, I've held back some of the worst details. But here's a sampling. In the second crime scene, the one described at the start of this episode, I already said that Krista Hoyt had been decapitated. Here's what I didn't mention. After raping, stabbing, and mutilating Krista, Rowling had left her, head still attached, posed in some fashion. Then he got worried that he had left his wallet behind, so he returned to her apartment. Walking in, he apparently didn't find the scene shocking enough. So he sliced off Krista's head and set it atop a bookcase and then even moved the bookcase so that it would look like Krista's head was gazing down upon her own body in shock. Her body, meanwhile, was propped in a sitting position at the end of her bed, and she'd been gutted, so her entrails were showing. I don't get overly detailed about these crime scenes unless I have a point, and my point here is all of this wasn't done to just humiliate and dehumanize Krista. This was to ensure that whoever found her was shocked and horrified and traumatized for life. It wasn't enough for this man to merely kill someone. He had to make sure each crime harmed as many people as possible, as immeasurably as possible. Rowling's crimes even scarred people who investigate murders for a living. He went through every detail of every case. This is forensic psychologist Harry Crope. The way he told the story, was horrific and obviously disturbing and upsetting, despite the fact that I've worked on numerous um, homicides before. This was one of the worst I've heard. And so when I left the jail, I sat down in my car and I, I broke down. It was very difficult. Whether anyone else saw Rowling as a victim, Rowling himself certainly did. In 2000, he wrote the Associated Press a letter that blamed his attacks in part on his abusive childhood, of course, but also on his earlier time in prison. He said that while he was in one Mississippi prison, he had been forced to live in deplorable conditions in a cell that would flood two to three times per week with backed-up raw sewage. He said his eight months in that place left him crazy as a loon. Now, to be fair, the prison where he was held is called Parchman Prison. And if you Google it, you'll learn it's an utter hellhole. The oldest prison in the state, it's underfunded and understaffed, and as recently as 2020, was called one of America's most notorious prisons by ProPublica. Inmates supplied photos of rats in the cells, standing water, mold, peeling paint, and cells with no running water for sinks or toilets. Danny Rowling wrote, quote, a mangy dog gets more consideration than what I received, end quote. During that spell, he said he vowed revenge, and so he killed one person for every year he spent in prison. 
Of course, this seems like some reverse-engineered bullshit. As far as anyone knows, Rowling only stopped killing because he was caught robbing a grocery store. He didn't confess until he had learned from police that his attempts to clean his DNA from the crime scenes had failed. And it's worth noting that he didn't target anyone with ties to even Mississippi, much less to the prison system he supposedly blamed for his crimes. He targeted completely innocent, random, college-age women and a few males who so happened to stand in his way. Plus, at times he made it clear that he relished those kills. He said he got a big kick out of it all the media coverage of the murders and things. And he really kind of reveled in the publicity and and being this kind of star of the media and getting all this attention all over you know the country, even the world. Rowling also described how he got off on reliving those horrible nights in his head. He described one of his rape victims as the best sex he ever had. Diana Hoyt, Krista's stepmother again. I'm a nurse. I don't believe in putting people to death, but... I knew that he said he would sit in his jail at night and look at the ceiling and remember everything that he had done. And because of that, I felt that that needed to be stopped. He deserved to be put to death. Jurors agreed. The jury took about six hours over two days to reach its recommendations. Those recommendations were unanimous and identical. Jurors deciding 12 to nothing that Danny Rowling should die in the electric chair. Prosecutor Rod Smith. You know, we might have been talking about a a, a bad home life. Well, this wasn't the Menendez brothers being replayed about some young boy who shoots daddy or mama or whatever. This is a man who'd been away from home, was 36 years old, and killed strangers and killed him in a brutal and ter- terrifying fashion. After a series of failed appeals, Danny Rowling's execution date was finally set for October 25th, 2006. By then, Florida had shifted from the electric chair to lethal injection. He had a final meal of lobster tail, butterfly shrimp, baked potato, strawberry cheesecake, and sweet tea. If he felt any remorse, he didn't show it. Rather, as his final statement, Rowling sang five verses of a gospel song as 47 people, many of them relatives of the slain victims, crowded into the witness room to watch him die. An assistant state attorney told a reporter afterward that it almost didn't seem like an execution. It seemed more like a stage performance. Rowling did do one arguably decent thing before he died. His guilty plea in the Gainesville murders had cleared former suspect Ed Humphrey of suspicion in those slayings, but he had never been charged with the 1989 Grissom family murder in Shreveport, the one that police suspected had been committed by Julie Grissom's estranged boyfriend, Hal Carter. Just before his execution, Rowling wrote a note in which he said Carter was 100% innocent. Carter was, of course, appreciative. He'd been living with a shadow hanging over him some 16 years. But I think it's safe to say that Rowling didn't confess just to clear Carter's name as much as he confessed to make sure he got full credit for the Shreveport kills. People ask me a lot of times, why why do you think he did it? Because he liked it. Rod Smith again. This meaningless guy became, uh, in his own mind, the star of his own show. He wanted to be remembered, and I realized that retellings such as this one help ensure that he is. But to do what little I can to keep the focus where it belongs, let me close with the names of the people who really matter in this story. Ted Grissom, Julie Grissom, Sean Grissom, Christina Powell, 
Sonia Larson, Krista Hoyt, Tracy Paulez, and Manny Tabuada. They're the ones who deserve to be remembered. To research this story, I've read A Monster of All Time, the true story of Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper, by J.T. Hunter, who was kind enough to chat for this episode. The FBI criminal pursuit episode about the case was really helpful, as was the 2020 special. For the record, this one gave me nightmares. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>